we're going to open up the word. We're back in uh, Psalm uh, 32, the 32nd Psalm this morning. I want to examine this psalm because it's one that has been uh, personal to me uh, over the last several years. And uh, so I just want to examine this psalm and talk through it. But uh, before I do that, I want to ask you this question. When was one of the or when was the last time that you had one of those like record scratch moments in your life? You know what I mean by that? You know, in like movies and TV shows, something surprising, shocking happens. You know, people are doing something they shouldn't and the parent walks in and the record scratch noise and people are shocked. They're stunned. They stand frozen. And time seems to also stand still after this sudden and tragic thing oftentimes happens. And usually in those moments, you start to ask the question, how did I get here? What, what did I do to have all of this occur? What did I do? What decisions did I make to have this record scratch happen? Well, I... Remember the last time I had one of those moments. <laughs> it was actually a little over 10 years ago when I was strapped to a gurney and I was staring up at the roof of an ambulance on my way to the emergency room. <laughs> I remember thinking very distinctly, how in the world did I get here? <laughs> I remember I was in such shock. I had been in a car accident and I remember I was just speechless. My thoughts were going a million miles an hour. I couldn't even think or, or speak clearly, but I do remember that thought running through my brain. How in the world did I get here? How in the world did I let this happen? You know, uh, hindsight's always twenty twenty. We We preached about that several weeks ago. But looking back on that, I can confidently say that all of that occurred because of a persistent uh, a proclivity to sin in my life. I'd been blinded uh, by my own rebellion such that I hadn't even realized how far I had strayed from the Lord. I was so blind to all the little rebellious decisions I had made. And that's the thing with sin, isn't it? The thing with sin is it always will lure you deeper and deeper, taking places you never thought that you would go, leading you to justify and excuse more and more sin, more and more questionable decisions until gradually you slip into greater and greater sins and suddenly you look around. You look around and you wonder, how did you get to where you are? How did I get here? I didn't mean for this to happen. Those who have uh, wrecked homes through choices they have made. They didn't wake up one day and just decide to wreck a home. (laughs) Someone who is given to uh, alcohol didn't decide one day, I want to become an alcoholic. It's decision after decision. It's choice after choice. And it leads you to a place you didn't expect to, uh, to be. I remember thinking those things that day. On my way to the emergency room. And actually there's a a profound figure in the Old Testament. Who I can imagine thinking the same exact things. And it's actually the writer of the psalm. King David. King David is a infamous character in scripture. His story kind of goes before him. He has a reputation so to speak. One with, where we're often familiar with all of the events of his life. He's that sort of a figure in in the scriptures. 
This psalm, Psalm 32, is traditionally linked with Psalm 51. And you might also know what Psalm 51 is about, which is David's sort of prayer of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. And all of that kind of blows up in his face. If you go there, actually do go there. I just want to look at it. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is the chapter. The chapter of David's sin. His, this devastating story. If you read all the verses, which we will not this morning for sake of time. But if you read the verses of 2 Samuel 11, it is a tragic narrative. A tragic narrative in which David is given over to sin by a choice that he makes. And of course, I want to say this as well, that David didn't just wake up one day and decide that he wants to have his way with this woman who was not his wife. And then he didn't wake up and decide, I'm just going to have to cover this sin. These are what this is what happens. This is what occurs when decision after decision is made that is not in line with God's word and will. He plunges himself headlong into sin, into tragedy. 2 Samuel chapter 12 is the climax of the story. If you remember, David has had this affair with Bathsheba after forcing himself onto her. She ends up, uh, because, uh, she ends up getting pregnant and that also blows up in David's face. So he has the bright idea, David does, in order to cover his sin, he is going to murder uh, Bathsheba's husband. This is the king, David, who has written all of your psalms. He has not only committed adultery and now he is scheming to commit murder, which he does. He pulls off successfully. And that's where we come here to chapter 12. Because the prophet Nathan is sent to David and he tells him this parable that stings David's conscience. Look at it, what it says. This is verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan unto David and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing. Save one little ewe lamb, which he had brought and nourished up, and it grew together with him. And with his children, it did eat of his own meat, and drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and, and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take one take of his own flock and of his own herd, to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. But took the poor man's lamb, and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled at the man. And he said unto Nathan, As the Lord liveth, The man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, thou art the man. This is the moment. This is David's sort of record scratch moment when suddenly all of the things that had led up to this become crystal clear. The story, uh, there was a poor man and a rich man. Both are, or the rich man is entertaining a, a wayfaring man, a traveler, and he doesn't want to waste one of his own lambs to feed this traveler, to make himself presentable as a good host, as a, as a hospitable host. And so he steals, he takes the poor man's lamb. The one, as he has just described, this poor man considered like a daughter, like a family member. That's how close this lamb was to him. If you've gotten close to any of your animals in your home, a pet, you know that they become a part of your family. 
And this is literally what has happened. This rich man has stolen, has taken part of this man's family. And used it to make himself, yes, a presentable host. And David is so enraged by the thought of the story. And then Nathan says, you are that rich man. That's who you are. You've taken something that's not yours. You've taken something that doesn't belong to you. And David is crushed. Look at verse 7 again. Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel. I anointed the king over Israel. And I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house. And thy master's wives. Into thy bosom. And I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little. I would have moreover given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandments of the Lord. To do evil in his sight. This is what David has done. He hasn't just sinned against Bathsheba, sinned against Bathsheba's family. He sinned against the Lord. He has rebelled against the one that he has called over and over again his God. And here, through this story, through these events, through the message of Nathan, he is brought to his knees in devastation and he repents to the Lord. Look at verse 13. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Albeit because this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the children also that is born. Or excuse me, the child also that is born to thee shall surely die. David, of course, is brought to a place of confession. A place of repentance. Not without consequences, mind you. Nathan, of course, tells him that. This one that, is, that Bathsheba is now bearing will die. But this awakens David. His soul is stirred into activity again after trying to hide his sin. And now he is worshiping the Lord for the forgiveness that is proclaimed to him. This, of course, is the familiar story of David. But go back to Psalm 32. That's what you have to keep in mind as David is here uh, proclaiming the Lord's forgiveness. That's the theme of Psalm 32. If Psalm 51 is that repentant cry of David unto the Lord, this psalm is, is one that comes after that even in the sense that it is all about forgiveness. All about the joy that can come through the Lord's forgiveness that is experienced by those who confess. This is clear right from the opening verses of the psalm. As he says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. And in whose spirit there is no guile. This is the theme Of the rest of these 11 verses. That the forgiveness of God. Is experienced after conviction. And yes after confession. It comes after we no longer are trying to hide our sin. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Two quick lessons I want to uh, highlight from this psalm. The first comes in verses 3 and 4. Which I've entitled the miserable gift Of conviction. The miserable gift of conviction. Look at what David says. When I kept silence. 
My bones wax old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. David is human just like you and me. I've tried to always reiterate that when we're coming to scriptures. Because I think so often we have these uh, differing views of those who are in the Bible as if they are somehow different than you and me. They lived in the Old Testament. Obviously they lived in a different time period. And so they can't be exactly like us. But David is exactly like you and me. Fesh and blood, bones that make him up. Convictions. And yes, he had good days and bad days. He had days where his hair wasn't like he wanted He's just like us. He stubbed his toes. He's a man just like the men that are in this room. He's a human just like everyone who is sitting in these pews this morning. And I say that because he's born with a sin nature just like you and me. And his sin nature leads him here to what he is confessing. That after he has sinned, what does he go about doing? Trying to hide it. Trying to make sure no one sees it. No one finds out about it. He doesn't want anyone to see all of the badness that he has committed. It's just like you and me. After we've sinned, we want to make sure we can sweep it under the rug. We can make sure that no one sees We want to keep silent about it. We want to make sure that the the good reputation we have, so to speak, isn't marred or or hindered or dented by the things that we have decided to do. And that's where you get to that that awful uh, plan and scheme that David comes up with. Let me read it to you. It's, It's back in 2 Samuel 11. I'll just read you these verses. After the sin has been committed, this is his first thought. Second Samuel 11 verse 14. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab. And sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Sent ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle. And retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. With the king's seal, he seals the fate of this innocent Uriah. This one who wasn't the wiser to his wife's affair. To David's forcing himself onto her. And David, yes, through all of the authority that he has as king of Israel, sets him up to die. He's trying to hide his sin. And it's ironic to me. Tragically ironic. That in David's mind, he was trying to wipe away all the blood that was on his hands for the sin that he has committed. And yet, whose blood is on his hands? Uriah's. Because he was the one who set it up. He's the one who schemed and plotted everything to happen. And yet for all of his energy. For all of his efforts in trying to hide what he was done. There was no escaping the guilt that had leached onto his soul. Listen to what he says there again in verse 3 of Psalm 32. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. My moisture, he says, is turned into the drought of summer. His strength was being zapped from him. It was being extracted from him by this shame and this guilt. He was literally being eaten alive by his own conscience. 
He couldn't even get through the day hardly without feeling all this incredible weight of remorse and regret. And he was running himself ragged by trying to keep silent about what he had done. His bones were becoming brittle. He was becoming physically and emotionally and spiritually weary. That's what he means there when he says my bones wax old. He was literally becoming physically exhausted. The spiritual turmoil was having an effect on his physical body. All of this conniving and plotting and scheming to try and keep the sin at bay. To keep all of the iniquity that he had done hidden. He couldn't. He says there in verse 3 that his conscience roared. He says, my roaring all the day long. His soul. Was literally screaming at him. Groaning is the word. It's like the cry of a wounded animal. That's the picture. That agonizing, grievous cry. That's what his soul was doing to him. Because it had been wounded. See, David may have been too... He may have been successful, perhaps, in fooling those who are around him. And pretending that everything was okay. He may have been okay at silencing the outer turmoil when he was around other people. But he could never silence the agony that was raging in his heart. That was uh, screaming in his soul. This, I think, is the miserable gift of conviction. And unconfessed sin. Because you see, the misery comes from the unconfessed part. David says, I kept silence. There's nothing more defeating than trying to live your life. Concealing, hiding, keeping silent about sin. The sin that is raging inside of you. It's self-defeating to try and live that way. And we think that we can do it. We think that we're capable of living this way. But we are not. We're just lying to ourselves Letting our conscience roar and scream. As the guilt and the dread and the shame comes for us because of our own wrongdoing. I think about, I immediately, when I was reading this passage, I immediately thought about our, our first parents, Adam and Eve. When they are brought to the knowledge of their sin, what do they try and do? They try to cover themselves with leaves that they make into clothing. As if God won't notice that. (laughs) And they try to hide. They try to cover their shame. And they cannot do it. The misery of conviction lies in unconfessed sin. The gift of it though comes from realizing that this uncomfortableness. This restlessness is by design. Is by God's design. Notice David's saying here. Notice his his thought in verse 4. He says, For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. He locates the the, the point from where all this conviction is coming from. From God's own hand. Pressing on him. Weighing heavily on his soul. 
He was resisting God. He wasn't resisting anyone around him. He was resisting God as he was trying to keep silent about the sin in his life. That feeling of conviction, of of rage, of, of a soul's roaring. Is us acting, as he says later on in the psalm, as a stubborn mule. Resisting the pulling of the reins by the Holy Spirit. Notice what he says in verse 9. Be ye not as a horse or as a mule which have no understanding. Whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle. Lest they come near unto thee. He likens himself as one who is resistant of the Lord's moving as a stubborn mule who is trying to go its own way. And the rider is having to jerk on the reins, pull him back in. That's what he was feeling. The misery of unconfessed sin, the miserable gift of conviction. But it leads to, in verse 5, the second thing this morning, the uncanny joy of confession. David here has had his soul pressed down by the convicting spirit of the Lord. And yet here he is led and brought to a place of confession. Notice what he says in verse 5. I acknowledge my sin unto thee. And mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Here we have the opposite of what he was just trying to do. Yes, through the course of Nathan, yes, telling him this parable, empowered by the Spirit of God, he tells this parable that brings David to a point of confession and repentance. And notice here, David is, yes, acknowledging his sin. He's confessing it openly. Rather than silence, God wants to hear us. He wants your confession. Notice in verse 5, he repeats the same exact words from verse 1. Talking about sin. He says, I acknowledge my sin. My iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions. Thou forgavest my iniquity. Sin, transgressions, iniquity. Just was what he was talking about in verse 1. In the sense that all of this that he has done has been fully forgiven by God. It is evident that through the spirit of the Lord, he is brought from a place where he's just trying to hide everything, conceal everything, pretend everything isn't as bad. He's brought to a place of conviction and confession. And this is what leads him to experience the forgiveness of God. Notice he says, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. And notice he inserts that word, Selah. It's a word that was a musical term oftentimes employed throughout the Psalms. Meaning to pause. Is it, a, a, is it an intentional stopping point? To pause and reflect on all the truth just uttered. It would be like if we were singing his robes for mine. And stopping at the first verse. And sitting in silence for like 30 seconds. Just thinking about what that verse means. It would be slightly awkward. Because we aren't used to that silence. (laughs) But that's sort of the point. 
It's getting us to intentionally stop and think about what has just been proclaimed. And here David is here reminding himself. Yes, using it in a public form. But reminding himself to stop and think about what the forgiveness of God. My friends, the forgiveness of God is something that we ought to never ever get over. It should always come as a shock to us. We know that it's not shocking in the sense that we know where it comes from. From Jesus dying on the cross and all those things. We know the gospel. But it should be shocking to us that we, yes, depraved sinners such as we are. Who, yes, make conscious decisions to rebel against God. Are able to experience forgiveness of sin. Forgive in verse 5. The same as the word in verse 1. And it has this meaning in the Hebrew to take off or to take away, carry away. That's the image that should stick in our minds. That when we pray for the forgiveness of God, he assures us that he has taken that sin away from us. He's taking it off of our shoulders. He's scribbled it out of our records. We are forgiven because... Our sins have already been carried by God's own son. They've been carried by the Lord of all glory. As he says elsewhere in Psalm 103. They have been taken away from us as far as the east is from the west. Let me read that psalm. Just those a couple verses from Psalm 103. Because it exalts this forgiveness in such an amazing way. Psalm 103 verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide. Neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins. Nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the the heaven is high above the earth. So great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west. So far hath he removed our transgressions from us. This is God's forgiveness of sinners. And it should be uncanny to us. It should be almost inconceivable. This idea as he articulates here in Psalm 103. That he hasn't dealt with us according to our sins. Why? Because he's already dealt with his son according to our sins. He's already dealt with Jesus as if he was the sinner. That way he doesn't have to deal with us as if we are the sinner. He can redeem us and call us his own. Why? Because his son was rejected on that cross. He was condemned for the sins that he did not commit. When you think of forgiveness. Think of that word. Impute. As he says there in verse 2. Back in Psalm 32. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. It's the same sort of idea. He's not dealing with us according to our sins. Why? Because he has not imputed, he has not reckoned or judged or placed those sins as a permanent record on our account. Why? He has placed those on his son. He has placed those on Jesus Christ. Yes, David 
is writing this looking forward unto that moment. It's already as if it has already happened. This is the glory of the gospel that Jesus declares to us. That Paul declares in Ephesians 1 where he says, Before the foundations of the world, this plan of redemption was already in motion. And the promise to David is the promise that is it's almost as if it's already done. Because with God, it had been done. His promise was as good as guaranteed to come about. And here David is looking forward unto that promise that this forgiveness is already his. And he's forgiven precisely because the penalty for sin is not given, is not judged for it. It is imputed and judged on God's son. This is the forgiveness of God. I asked Pastor Nathan to uh, email me his definition of forgiveness. Because uh, we were talking uh, several months ago and he just spouted off this awesome forgiveness definition. I was like, I need to steal that. (laughs) But I read it to you because I think it's very apt and it gets at the heart of what I'm trying to impress upon you. Forgiveness is the lifting of a charge of guilt against another. A formal declaration of that fact and a promise which is made and kept never to remember that wrong against him in the future. Forgiveness is an act of the will. You see, this is precisely what God has done on our behalf. The public declaration of the fact of forgiveness is his son bleeding and dying for us on a cross. Bearing the full weight of all of our sin and our shame. And he promises that because of that, the God who cannot forget chooses not to remember our sins. I think that's a verse in Isaiah. I I wish I had the reference for, for you. But he chooses not to remember. There's another reference in Isaiah where he talks about throwing that sin behind his back. The God who is eternal, who is omniscient, who knows all things, chooses not to remember your sins against you. That is the forgiveness of God. The sins that plague our souls, the things that we have done that bring us down, that devastate us, have been forgiven, taken off of us, cleared forever by this God of all forgiveness and grace. This is what David experienced after his confession. He experienced it because the Son of God was judged as a sinner so that he might not be judged the same way. And in fact, as it says in verse 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice ye righteous. Think David had trouble saying that word. Calling himself righteous after all the things that he knew he had done. Yet he says it with confidence. Why? Because he didn't do anything to make him righteous. It was the Lord who had made him righteous of his own willful forgiveness of his iniquity. This is the uncanny joy of confession. Wherein we are brought to forgiveness. Wherein the Lord against whom we have sinned brings us close and calls us his family. 
As he says in verses 6 and 7, he delivers us out of troubles. In verses 8 and 9, he guides us. And in verses 10 and 11, he becomes our passionate friend. David had experienced this personally. David, the murdering adulterer, is forgiven. Think about that. All of that is taken off of him. Why? Because it was put on Jesus. And he died for it. Yes, David is the man after God's own heart. Even after this disastrous season of life. Because God's forgiveness is that powerful. This morning. Let me just reiterate this. You can never outsin the coverage of God's forgiveness. It goes far wider and broader and farther than any amount of sin that you could ever allow in your life. It is that powerful. You can never outsin God's coverage of forgiveness. So this morning, if you're thinking that there's something that God cannot forgive me for, let me tell you right now that is a lie from Satan himself. The gospel has forgiveness for any and every sinner who has ever walked the face of this earth. And us being deceived into believing that there's some sort of uh, transgression that is not a part of the atonement is the idea that his atonement isn't that powerful. Yet here we're reminded it's more than powerful. It forgives murderers. It forgives an adulterous king who had exploited his position of power for his own selfish gain. It can forgive your lying tongue. It can forgive your hateful heart. Your erroneous speech. That speech that just comes out and you wish you could just take it back. It forgives your laziness, your apathy, your indifference. It's a forgiveness that extends to all of the sins that plague our hearts and our lives. It's the forgiveness that comes on the heels of confession. You might be curious about that story I referenced at the beginning of being on a gurney in the back of an ambulance on my way to the ER. It's a true story. I didn't just say it for hyperbole or just, you know, want to make you listen. Uh, this was back almost 10-ish years ago. I had just gotten saved three summers before that. I got saved at 16 years old. And before that, so, but in, this was in 2009. And so in those intervening three years of being a new Christian, and I felt weird as a new Christian because, of course, I was a second-generation pastor's kid. So uh, it felt just, I just felt weird that I was still a new Christian at 16 years old. I was already sliding into the patterns of my life that had defined me before I was saved. Patterns of sin and rebellion and just horrible, horrible lifestyle. And one morning, this was early 2009, I was driving. Yes, this is an important point to remember. I was driving my brother's truck to work. It was a nice, lifted 4x4 F-150. My brother still tells me that it was his favorite truck. (laughs) Which is important to remember because I was driving to work when suddenly, bang, head-on collision. 
going 40 miles an hour with no braking on a two-lane road. My brother's truck, needless to say, was totaled. He never got to drive that truck again, unfortunately. The oncoming driver was very much dazed and confused, and I was shocked and bewildered and horrified. I'd just gotten into an accident on my way to work on a mundane Monday morning, totaling my brother's truck. I don't even remember what happened in the, from the moment where I was in the truck to where I was in the ambulance. Something happened. But I remember just being strapped to that gurney. And I was looking up at the, at the roof of the ambulance thinking, what in the world have I done? It's a bona fide miracle. I, I call it a miracle because I really believe it is that neither one of us that day suffered any injuries. Head-on collision at 40 miles an hour and no injuries the ER visit was just really a precautionary measure, just kind of checking our vitals and so, so forth. And I often think of what would have happened that day if I had driving another vehicle. If I was driving something other than my brother's truck that day. He was visiting his fiancée, now wife, uh, out in Kansas, so he just happened to not be around. So I was kind of left to drive that truck that day. And I think it's only by God's mercy. Not I think, I know it's only by God's mercy that I was delivered out of that. He worked everything out, including the vehicle I was driving, to get my attention. Maybe you're gathering the fact that I'm a little stubborn. That I need a 40 mile an hour head on collision to get my attention. <laughs> I wish it didn't have to happen that way, but sometimes God can, God's conviction can take very stark and very open public events and crises. For me, it was a car accident. For you, it might be something else. But for me, that's I can clearly say, was God, the writer, tugging on the reins of a stubborn, under, ununderstanding mule. <laughs> Who wanted to go his own way. And maybe yeah it's not just a soft nudge. Just a harsh jerk. But God will get your attention. He got my attention. <laughs> he brought me yes flat on my back in a literal sense. He brought me to my knees. And sometimes that's the gift that he gives us. Because he loves you. Let me tell you, he loves you too much to let you stay where you are. Content with your apathy. Content with your sin. Content trying to hide all of the things that you have done. He loves you too much to let you stay there. So either through a soft nudge or a harsh jerk, he's going to get your attention and bring you to a place where he can usher you out of that misery of unconfessed sin. And as it says in verse 10, into the place of his mercy. Look at verse 10 where he says, many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. It shall surround him. He wants to bring you to that place it comes through conviction and confession this morning let me ask you are you tired of hiding your sin do you feel like David who as he says there he confessed that he was waxing old his, his whole life was becoming brittle over trying to conceal the transgressions of his life is that you this morning 
Are you exhausted from trying to maintain this squeaky clean reputation? This morning, the invitation is to come and confess. Do not be silent. Do not try to resist the gift of conviction, but realize it's what God is leading you to. It's the gift of conviction that leads us to confession, which allows us to enjoy his forgiveness. Come and confess. Because this morning, regardless of what you think has defined your life, this morning, as David says, you can join the company of the righteous who shout for joy because of God's forgiveness. Not because of something you have done, not because of something that you can do, is His forgiving, compassionate grace. That's why we are here this morning. As it says in 1 John 1 9, He is faithful and just, just to forgive us our sins. Why? If we confess them. This is all the hope that we have, and praise God for that. Because it's all the hope that we need. The gift of conviction. If you feel unsettled this morning, that's on purpose. It's not me, it's the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God working on you. If you feel uncomfortable, don't try and silence that. Let God lead you out of conviction and into confession. Because there's no sin that God cannot forgive. Let us pray.